Hey everyone, and welcome to another special episode of We Need to Talk. Today I am joined by writer, pastor, and activist John Pavlovitz. He's the author of A Bigger Table, Hope and Other Superpowers, and his brand new book, Stuff That Needs to Be Said. He's someone I am a fan and follower of, and now very blessed to call a friend. John, thanks for joining me. Oh, so good to be with you. How are you holding up these days? <laughs> you know, I'm I'm doing what everyone's doing. I'm kind of taking it hour by hour, really. Yes. And, you know, trying to, uh, as I tell people, to engage and withdraw, to do both of those things. And the withdraw part, the kind of pulling away is really hard. And so I'm trying to do as much as I'm able to do and then know when my um, my body and my my mind are not um, functioning. You know, it's yes. hard to know when you reach that saturation point or when you reach sort of a toxic place. So. Yeah, it's good to know where your limits are. And I think a lot of people are, mental illness is a thing and mental health is a thing that everyone's talking about right now. So glad you're yeah. taking care of yourself in that sense. Yeah, usually it's after you kind of get it wrong for a, a, stretch of, a stretch of three or four days when you realize, oh, yeah, maybe I should sleep or maybe. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. Well, you know, you and I, we, we follow each other on social media and, and we're no strangers to um, talking about current events and, and issues. And as we know, 2020 has just been a roller coaster and that's putting it mildly. Um, but Currently, I feel like the two main illnesses, and I'm calling them illnesses, um, that this country is kind of going through are obviously COVID-19 and racism. Mm. And um, I know that you and I, we both identify ourselves as Christians and followers of Jesus and his teachings. And I have to say, I've been really, really surprised and, and disappointed by um, some people in faith communities and how they've been responding to both of these situations. So just diving into the, the global pandemic, Let's let's start there. Um, what are some observations that you've seen specifically from self-identified Christians and people in faith communities that has surprised you? Well, when it when it began, I think the the prevailing thought was, okay, there's no way anyone can weaponize this. There's mm-hmm. no way we can make this partisan because it's just a tragedy, and we're all going to be going through it. And you 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 hoped that the best of humanity would rise up, and that people of faith and morality and conscience would actually pull those things into the conversation and really alter everything that was happening. And then what you saw was that it became like so many thing, other things, it became a, a symbol of my political affiliation mm. or my religious slash political affiliation. And so you saw people kind of choosing against their own better, their self-interest and the health of others mm-hmm. to sort of align with a position. And so that's been the saddest thing for me is to realize, okay, here are a group of people who profess faith in Jesus who should be at their best right now and who are, are, who should be like bringing, walking into the the situation and bringing a sense of peace and are doing just the opposite. And that's, that's the tragedy of these days. Where do you think the fear lies with them? Like when you hear that, when they hear there's a global pandemic, we have to stay home. We can't go to church now. Like, why do you think there's such a fear within that? Well, I think we're all kind of, we all have our stories that we tell ourselves about what is true, and I think the narrative that many Christians need to be true. One, one of the part of that narrative is, hey, everything's fine. There is no failure of our leadership, mm. and we're you know, and so what you begin to do is make little um, concessions in believability. You say, okay, I'm going to allow this to enter my thought process. This conspiracy theory or this line of thinking because that's going to support the narrative that I really need because mm. if that narrative falls apart 
uh, like so many things that we're going to talk about today, if that part of the narrative falls apart, it's a house of cards and I have to deal with everything. I have to deal with the sort of systemic ills of my theology. And most people don't want to take the time to do that. Right. And I think what I also find um, the most surprising is that, uh, well, first of all, you know, um, Christianity is connected for some reason to the Republican Party. And I've always find that, found that to be, um, so, you know, it just didn't make sense to me. But Jesus, to me, has always been the number one social justice warrior. He always put people before himself. So when you're asking a group of people to do something as simple as wear a mask, and you see that the majority of people that are against it and, and resisting it are the people in the faith community. I'm like, wait, hold up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, and that's been the mystery of, of, of the past, really, 50 or 60 years, that there is a group of people who profess to be pro-life. And yet, if you look at, at the ethic of their lives, it, you know, there are so many um, varieties or manifestations of life that they are not supportive of and even predatory toward. And then, so the mask is just the latest. It's that most overt act of um, defiance of health and well-being. It's the idea of shalom, you know, in, in the Bible. The idea of shalom wasn't just, I want an absence of bad for you, but I want an abundance of good for you. And it's Jesus loving your neighbor. And so you see people who say, I'm not even going to do that. I'm not going to make the smallest act of kindness or compassion um, for other people. And that's what you, you can't figure out how they connect that dot, those dots to Jesus. Right, right. Um, what other observations have you seen in regards to going back into churches? Cause you know, we got put in quarantine, you know, right. houses of worships were, were shut down. They weren't considered essential with people were so offended by that. It wasn't an essential business, which that's another conversation. Church isn't a business, but, um, yeah. you know, what, what have you seen in responses to that? Well, I, I think, you know, there, there is a group, there's a group of people who've learned the art of, of language that, that gets Christians that leverages the fear that they have or leverages their, their defensiveness. And so when you have the president say, I'm going to state that faith communities are essential when he doesn't attend a faith community and has no interest in a faith community. <laughs> right. <laughs> because if he did, he'd realize that the church is the, is the people of God and it's not a, a location, right? We know this, but it's just so elemental Christianity 101 that if you, if you aren't a person of faith, you're going to speak that way. But mm -hmm. what, what's crazy about the whole thing is that you have millions of people who do know this stuff that we're talking about and yet are able to be swayed by that. There's an emotional reaction to that that says, oh, yes, he gets me or he's defending us, even if his life has no markings of a follower of Christ. Right. Which, speaking on that, I don't understand the draw, to be honest, to Trump. <laughs> when you look at what Christians are supposed to stand for, what Jesus stood for, if you really yeah. dive into... Um, that kind of lifestyle, it's hard for me to understand why you would see this man and think that he is the representative for what you believe. Well, right. And it's a pretty complex <laughs> idea, but part of it, it shows you that people who have been raised for years or even decades in a really 
toxic, distorted Christianity where I say that God is a white cisgender heterosexual man who was born in America, raised Christian and votes Republican. And it's sort of like the idea of that's what a Christian is. And mm-hmm. anything outside of that is something to either be feared or kept at a distance. And then you add to that sort of the narrative that Trump provides, which is you should be afraid and I'm going to protect you. Mm. And the, the Christian sort of um, that these these Christians, they 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 covet or they value obedience. And so they're going to they need someone to be obedient to. They need a leader and to put their faith in. And then you you add also the idea that there's intellectually lazy Christians who say, just give me a soundbite and I'll believe that. Give me mm. Franklin Graham and let him tell me what I should feel about every issue. And then I don't have to do any work. I don't even right. have to read the Bible that I claim right. to love. Right. Um, going back to what you said about obedience, I've, I've found this, um, and I don't know if you've seen this uh, documentary on Netflix called The Family. Yes. It's terrifying. Right. <laughs> but it, it, it's that whole thought process that whoever is put in leadership is God appointed. And there's no, yeah. you're not allowed to have any pushback or question that at all. And I think that that's really dangerous because even reading the Bible, we see that there were evil leaders that God did want to get rid of and didn't, wasn't, you know, in favor of, for example. So it's, yeah. it's hard for me to get on board with this mindset that whatever happens truly is God's will. Well, and it's, it shows you the, the weaponizing of scripture because yeah. obviously this, you know, I can remember being in a church, in a mega church, and uh, during Obama's tenure, and they had a men's breakfast, right, whatever, mm-hmm. and so the, the guys got together, and they had breakfast, and then part of the the, the, the breakfast were, we're going to take these cards, actually, this is before Obama, we're, this is, we're going to take these cards, and we're going to write them out, we're praying for you, Mr. President, and then when, when Obama became president, that whole thing stopped, mm. so obviously, God wasn't appointing people for those eight years, it's only he was taking a break, and now he's resumed appointing presidents. Oh and so that's gosh. what you see. It's, um, you know, there, there is no, um, the selective use of the Bible is just staggering to me. And the, yeah, the selective use of the Bible, but also God only appoints who I agree with. Yes. You know, <laughs> so you didn't like Obama. Oh, well, he, he was the Antichrist. He, God did not yeah. choose him, you know. Yeah, so uh, I, right, was God asleep at the wheel. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you're having a bad eight-year stretch. And so that's, um, and you try, it's ridiculous to us, but then when you try to actually bring these things to people that we're talking about, there's a complete rejection of that. There's a mm-hmm. complete knee-jerk response. Mm-hmm. That's how visceral the, the white supremacy is, that's the, the response that it carries. Mm-hmm. Um, and transitioning into white supremacy, because we talk a little bit about racism and everything that's going on in the country right now. How big of a role do you think white supremacy plays in evangelical churches and in faith communities? I, I was, you know, I've been a pastor for 28 years, but a mm-hmm. lot of that has been in mega churches, white, predominantly mega churches in the South. And that was not where I was raised. And you began to see the more I walk through it, you know, the subtle supremacy that runs through um, just the, the prayers that we would pray or the language we would use or, or the people who were on the platform. And so it's really, it's never as overt as it is lately. You know, we, we look at people like Falwell or we look at someone like, you know, um, even, you know, Trump's circle and Paula White, and it almost seems like they're screaming it out, but it's really just a subtle reinforcing of these are the bad people 
these are the dangerous people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's never, it's never lifting up white supremacy. It's vilifying non-white. And mm-hmm. so, and that's always the inner city or, you know, so, or, and you see the immigration, you see it over and over again. It's a, it's a, yes, you should be terrified of everyone who doesn't look like you. That's a very interesting point that you say. It's not necessarily lifting up white supremacy, but it's vilifying everybody that doesn't look like you. I think people need to realize that that's what it is because so many people will be quick to be like, I'm not racist. I've never said anything racist. You know, I've never said anything about about white power, white supremacy or anything, but they don't know that their actions and them not speaking out against certain things is basically being compliant to that mindset. That's right. And then so when you have a week like the week that we've had, mm-hmm. when anything presents itself, they're always going to jump to their initial default response is going to be fear. It's going to be to believe a white person and suspect a person of color without even verbalizing it or intellectualizing it. Right. It just right. happens. And that's the you know, that's what I'm trying to always get to is to say to other white Christians, hey, let me tell you what what I see in you that I didn't see in myself, and I'm learning every day. But here's what I think. Here's some questions you might want to ask. Mm-hmm. Uh, why do you suppose you're jumping to that place? And again, for me, it was once I started to do that. That really was an existential freefall. I had to pick apart my whole belief system. You know, I tell right. people when life begins to argue with your theology, then that's a really you either hold on to the theology or you let it kind of fall apart for a bit. And a lot of people just don't want to do that. They don't want to take the time to to ask the hard questions because those right. answers are going to be bad news for them. Right. And there's, you know, people don't want to have to deal with their own guilt. And, and it's hard to come to terms with the fact that this country in general, just by its set of beliefs and how it operates, you are conditioned and born with implicit bias. I mean, even as, as an African-American woman, I can sit here and say, you know, I grew up in a predominantly white town. I even would have implicit bias towards my own people because of what I was surrounded by. And I, it wasn't until I got out of Santa Barbara and, and went into LA and then went to New York, went to Chicago and really exposed myself to different types of people. And it, it sounds bad to say, but different types of black people and, and, and different types of people in the Latino community to realize, oh, my, my worldview was even really skewed as a minority. So I can only imagine how white people will think that way, you know? Right. Well, and, and for me, it was, you know, getting to Philadelphia and go, you know, I was raised in sort of suburban upstate New York and really wasn't around a lot of people who didn't look or talk or think or believe the way that I did. Mm-hmm. And then you, I got to Philadelphia and my sort of like my head exploded. But during that process, I realized how much bigger the, the world is, but how much greater expanse there is of really good people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, before it was, oh, there are the good people. And then there are these bad people over here. And the good people were always the ones who had the most in common with me on the surface. And then when that changed, you just saw how much better it is to live expansively. And so what you see in Trump supporters who are Christians and who are white, especially, mm-hmm. it's just their world is so small and their God is so small. And they really would have complete contempt for the biblical Jesus if he walked into their midst, <laughs> right? Right, so- right. So two of the main situations, and I talked about this on an earlier episode of my podcast, that really, to me, were a breaking point for this country. Um, we have the situation with Amy Cooper that was in Central Park, and then we have the murder of George Floyd. So I don't think people realize how 
connecting those two situations are because I think with police brutality and the images that you see and the constant um, news of police, you know, killing black men over the last few years, those type of situations perpetuated the reaction that Amy Cooper gave Christian Cooper in Central Park because she wouldn't have known to say an African-American man is attacking me had she not known that the police treat African-Americans differently. And I think people need to realize there's a huge connection between those situations. I'm just curious your thoughts on that as well. There's no question. And what, you, what you're what you realizing, if you're paying attention, is both of these are videoed, very well-documented you know, events. And if either of them are not, we have a completely different narrative that we're operating from and we're not even able to deal with what's in front of us. And that's the mystifying thing, that you have a large swath of our, our, of our nation who will even look at the evidence and concoct some story in their heads about what might have happened before or after yeah. that's going to justify their position. But right, Amy Cooper, you know, she might have, I don't even know her politics. I think she might have even been a liberal, you know, yeah. progressive. yeah. And so but you see that, okay, but I know I filed away that that is the way that the, this country operates. So if I need ammunition in my situation, I'm going to pull to that. And even and so you could be as woke as you claim you want to be. <laughs> and yet that's there in the database that you're living from. Yeah, it's. And it's interesting because, yes, she was a liberal progressive. She voted for Obama. She campaigned for him, I think, I guess. And when you're talking about that implicit bias, it's like you don't even realize you have that in you until you're in that situation. And to me, that's the scary part. (laughs) Because like you said, you could be as well as you want to be. But as soon as you don't get your way or... You're, you're, you're not able to exercise, you, well, you are exercising your privilege, you can hurt another human being, you're not even realizing that you're doing it. Which is why, you know, white Trump supporters, the, the problem is not the things even that they might think they believe. They might say, oh, I love all people or <laughs> all lives matter. They might, and they might truly think that they believe that. And yet in those moments of urgency or those moments where they're not really thinking, where they're just reacting, the reactions reveal the bias and the prejudice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and that's what we're seeing now when mm-hmm. the emotional response is all you have, well, you're going to say, well, why are these people looting? Uh, let's mm-hmm. crack down on that rather than mm-hmm. saying, well, if someone was executed in broad daylight. Maybe I should be upset about that. Yeah. What is the best way that you can explain to somebody why all lives matter is not the right response? I mean, for me, it's the idea that when you say that Black Lives Matter, you're 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 obviously claiming that all lives have value. But what you're saying is we have lived in a nation that historically has not valued the lives of people of color. Mm -hmm. So it hasn't needed to be said. It's it's the the ridiculous idea of a um, a white lives matter or, you know, (laughs) those marches that they were having. It's like. We have always mattered. My physicality has bought me every privilege that I could ever want. Mm-hmm. And just by my appearance, just by showing up, I'm afforded those things. And right. so to say Black Lives Matter, especially as a white person, is to say, I'm going to confess the sins of our nation and I'm going to confess the ways those systems have afforded me comfort and ease and um, rest that most people never experience as their default setting. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just a necessary at this time. It's to uh, to admit our culpability. 
Do you think that Christians need to be held to a higher standard when it comes to denouncing racism? That'd be great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that'd be super. Well, because the whole idea is it, it's ludicrous to me that, that professed followers of Jesus, who was really the epitome of the, someone who made his home in the margins and with the vulnerable and fighting for the oppressed. And for me, you know, a Christianity without compassion for the marginalized is counterfeit. And so I think that's the most startling part of this. It's that yeah. Trump Christianity is marked by contempt for outsiders and predatory behavior toward the vulnerable. And right. they're, they're, Jesus is absent from that. You can't have the parable of the Good Samaritan and have the, you know, the Samaritan just keep walking by or to rob the person again. Hmm. I've noticed, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but a lot of people that do use the All Lives Matter rebuttal, they tend to bring up Martin Luther King often. Mm-hmm. And one, it drives me crazy because, yeah. and I don't know if you saw his son tweeted this, but he said, if my father were alive, you would not like him. So oh, wow. <laughs> please stop using him as an example. But why do you think that they cling to him so much? Because what, what you don't see in those pictures of them marching is that afterwards, they were also beaten up by cops. They were also shot yeah. with tear gas. <laughs> and, you know, I'm just curious, why, why do you think that they cling to that so, so tightly? <laughs> I, I th- well, I think uh, there, are, there are moments that they can choose and they can sort of recreate. Um, it's almost like using that sort of technology where you create someone um, uh, in a movie and you recreate them 30 years later, they can take Martin Luther King and sort of tame him and make him palatable and comfortable and select the quotes that sort of give them that feeling. And never minding that, you know, Martin Luther King writes about the fact that these very white people who are passive are are a part of the problem here. And, And I think, and not realizing that too, he was murdered for being offensive to people who were racist. So right, it's not, right. it doesn't matter. His delivery wouldn't have mattered. It was his very presence that was so, um, that elicited such a response in them. So they, people can invoke, you know, Martin Luther King all they want, but the <laughs> truth is they're participating in the very system that led to his murder. Right. Uh, so I find it, you know, I try, I try to call Christians out on that all the time. And just by sharing the quotes that, that they were will be unsettled by. Right. For you, when did you realize your privilege and how would you suggest to other people how to figure that out and how to come to terms with it? Well, I think it's it's just a daily process of of listening. The the more stories that you get of people who are not like you, right? So I as a pastor, I began to spend more time hearing people's stories of America or the church um or of um the world that were different than my own. And those stories started to alter my story, give me different questions. Um, So I think for me, it's telling white people to get with people who have something new to tell them and then, but be willing to sift through that and say, okay, what does this mean for me? Then I sort of rewound and look back at my life and said, oh yeah, my dad did get pulled over by the cops and he did you know, tell the cop to just give him the effing ticket and move on. Mm. And the cop did. And why is that? How did he, was he able to do that? And some young black men can't even pull their car over. So you try to connect the dots between the stories you're hearing in the present and your past experience and trying to be honest about those. 
That's, I think that's great advice. And a lot of, but it's, it's really hard for a lot of people. Um, and like I said, it's that guilt that comes in when you realize, you know, oh, I've benefited from this, or I treated this person this way. I didn't realize I made this joke. I mean, I, I know I have a lot of people that I grew up with in Santa Barbara that are apologizing to me and realizing, oh my God, I said this to you growing up. I said this to you and I didn't realize, you know, thank you for all the constant educating. So it is yeah. a process and, and, and nobody really likes to be introduced to themselves. My mom loves to say that. And I think that's such a great phrase because you are technically meeting yourself again and then fixing it. Right. Because, and there's a grief that should come along with, with what you find out. Mm-hmm. And, and yet that grief and, or that guilt, if it just stays there, it really doesn't serve any purpose. So for me, I'm always trying having to help people realize, okay, this, this realization of your privilege, it's, it's, um, it's currency for you to go and spend your life differently. Now it's for you to use your life in a different way. There's no, that guilt and you can't go back and, know those things then but you know now differently so you have responsibility and that's where for me as a pastor I realized I have to leverage my pulpit and my platform yeah and if I don't then that that guilt is just wasted it's just it's just an exercise in sort of uh self um you know it's narcissism really yeah 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 well, we're halfway through this year and I, I, I wake up every day like what is going to happen? <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's everything. I saw a meme the other day that was like, I'm looking outside the, the, the window to see what part of Revelation we're living through because that's what yeah. it feels like. But what would you like to see happen in the, in the second half of the year, just in regards to the pandemic, in regards to racism? What would you like to see from faith communities? What do you want these last six months to look like? I guess I I want people to put more into the game here. Uh, You know, there are a lot of people who read my writing, for example, and they'll say, oh, I love what you write. Thank you for your boldness. I can't go and say that, they'll say. Mm. I want them to actually say it. You know, whether it's ministers will say, oh, thank you for saying this, because I'd love to say this on a Sunday morning. And I say, well, you could, but you'll just end up out here terminated (laughs) like I was. Or to people who say, you know, I've got this family and uh, they're just – they're horrible, but I can't say anything. Well, you can, you'll just have to deal with the ramifications. Right. And I think we're starting to see that this week, that there are people who are saying, you know, a friend of mine in our church, he's a member of the military, but he keeps the things close to the vest, fairly progressive guy, but he, you know, he tweeted out and put on social media. I will never follow the orders of this president. And when, when I was serving, I was taught to, to, you know, follow the constitution and this per, this president is unconstitutional. And I was just so gr- glad to see that, but I think yeah. we have to have that over all the spectrum of America, people saying, I hadn't said this before, but I'm saying it now. I hadn't risked this fracture in my relationships. I'm going to risk it now. Yeah. Um, that's what I want. I want brave people to show up. It's refreshing to see that. I definitely am seeing that more in my circle as well, because I obviously have had those conversations like, oh, I don't want to offend, you know, my aunt that lives in Texas or, yeah, or right. my friend that I went to high school with or whatever. But it's like, you know, at the end of the day, you have to decide kind of if you want to be on the right side of history. And I hate saying like we're on the right side, but it is the right side because it's the side that cares and loves for everybody. And is, you know, <laughs> that to yeah. me is very simple. Yeah, I mean, you. I tell people all the time, you know, you have to pick your hills worth dying on with, with relationships, too. There are relationships that people have had this tenuous peace for a long time. And yet, you know, for someone, you know, like to look at George Floyd, to look at that story, um, to look at Timmy Rice, and you know, those stories, mm-hmm. those are people who, if you're louder 
in your life 10 years ago, and if millions of people are louder, maybe those situations don't happen. So I'm trying people, I want people to be bold now so that in five years and 10 years, we have a culture that doesn't allow what happened this week to happen. I agree. Absolutely. And then more specifically, before we wrap up, what do you want to see from, from Christians? Jesus. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I want something in their life. You know, Jesus, is, Jesus is, just like Martin Luther King, they make Jesus benign. You know, they make Jesus, um, well, Jesus was not offensive or he was nice. And, and I think, I don't want Christians to be nice. I want them to be Christ-like. Hmm. And I want hmm. them to walk into a situation where they're going to face confrontation because people are worth it. These are not issues. They are not, uh, you know, buzzwords, they're human beings that we are trying to make sure more human beings are honored with the dignity that they are image bearers of God. And That's it's not political. Point. That's the thing. When no. people say, oh, I don't want to get into politics. I'm like, humanity is in politics. Saying that you, you, you care for somebody and care for another person's life is not political at all. And if it is, then your religion is broken, you know, <laughs> right. your, because you know, for me, you know, Jesus, sure, when Jesus says, when he, when he touches the leper, that's a political statement, you know, he's making a statement to the community when he's, he's caring for the poor, and he's feeding them, it's still going to disrupt the system. And so everything's going to have something political in it, because it's our personal worldview. But uh, compassion, if that becomes partisan, is the problem. Mm -hmm. If, if loving your neighbor as yourself becomes a political side, then we know the whole thing is broken because right. there shouldn't be a side to that. That should be the thing that we can at least agree on. Amen. Well, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Can you let everyone know uh, about your, your books and where they can find you? Yeah, John Pavlovitz. Uh, my name is difficult to spell, but once you spell it, you're fine. So YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and and the books and all that. But uh, yeah, so I'm just uh, kind of an itinerant uh, minister, but just trying to... Um, I, I call myself a war correspondent, sharing stories with people and telling those stories. I love that. Well, thank you guys for listening and we will talk to you again soon. Bye.